This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 25th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The political struggle over how best to deal with climate change has focused primarily on mitigation, preventing as much climate change as possible. Matthew Kahn, a professor of economics at the University of Southern California, argues that urbanization has much to teach us about adapting to a potentially warmer world. We spoke last week in Bozeman, Montana. Economists, and when other people use the term mitigation and adaptation with respect to climate change, what are they talking about? It's a good question. Mitigation means reducing the world's total tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Adaptation means given what we've already released, how do we continue to have a good life in the face of what we've released? Do mitigation and adaptation fall along partisan lines in terms of the desire to to fix the climate change problem with respect to humans specifically? So I think all of us want to be healthy, comfortable, and safe. I, I think that um, in academic communities, I used to be at UCLA's Institute of the Environment, and all... The academic community is convinced that climate change is a real threat and that greenhouse gas emissions contribute to it. There's a debate about our ability to handle what we've unleashed. And I have been on the optimistic side that while taking the challenge of climate change very seriously, that we have a number of tools, namely urbanization, to help us to adapt. In terms of adaptation, you say urbanization is the is a key but what does that mean and why how should we be thinking about urbanization as a key to dealing with the climate change that humans have already caused so let me answer that indirectly and you may not like this it when i was at ucla and i'm no longer there there were ecologists talking about birds that birds have evolved and need some niche climate. And as climate change heats up the world, these birds will climb to higher altitudes, seeking out their old niche in our new world. But because mountains are finite, they won't be able to find their niche. Unlike birds, urbanites have a number of options to continue to eat and be safe and be productive. That uh, unlike people who work outside, urbanites are indoors, have air conditioning options have access to better food, access to better medical care, have a variety of strategies to protect themselves. And if the city they live in does not offer good defense, uh, whether it's a Miami or whether it's a Cairo, they have options to move somewhere else to start their life. So what are the specific uh, concerns that are driving the attempt to better understand what adaptation might look like? So the big four are that climate change, the climate scientists have convinced me that my Los Angeles may face extreme heat, may face sea level rise, might face fires, and might face elevated pollution risk. So for each of those, I have suboptimistic arguments of how we're going to adapt to those. So I'll leave it to you how we want to proceed. Well, let's start with sea level rise. Lots of people live on the coast. It's a beautiful place to live. Uh, you're saying that uh, giving those up may be inevitable. So 
we get into specificity. There's consulting firms using big data techniques, providing very precise indicators at your latitude and longitude of what risks you face. So the dangerous man doesn't know that he doesn't know the risks he faces. Like Don's Rumsfeld, I know that there's known unknowns. If you know as a coastal homeowner that you don't know the risks you face, you bring in one of these consultants to give you one of these risk reports. If it turns out that you face a 10% chance of sea level rise, the prudent person with a $700,000 house puts it on stilts, gets stuff out of the basement, makes a series of investments to reduce their risk exposure. Uh, this is just common sense that if we foresee we may have a problem, then you have the beginnings of a solution. On that specific example, we have many government policies that might uh, nullify the incentive to take those common sense actions or to go against uh, those, those actions. And so that, that's a fascinating point. And, and I agree that a, in my new work on the political of economy of how we will adapt to climate change, we face issues. For example, FEMA has good intentions, but many economists has made his or her career pointing out the unintended consequences of government actions. And if it's the case that expected government bailouts or if they're expected, this induces people to take risks that they wouldn't have had they been betting their own money. And, and, and so a key issue is, is, are people aware of the risks and are they aware of the government's response when bad things happen to good people? And a libertarian like me would say we will have a, make better choices in terms of risk exposure if people have more skin in the game and don't anticipate a government bailout. But people always anticipate a government bailout when the unforeseen uh, happens. In that case, we face questions of commitment devices. Should government or should land trusts, if we're going to be libertarians here, should land trusts be collecting money and purchasing coastal real estate and setting it up as... People routinely expect a government bailout. In fact, it's policy when it comes to a lot of coastal areas. So at my University of Chicago, we were taught no free lunch, and then we would even chant this, and we never received a free lunch. As you said, coastal living is beautiful on a number of amenity levels, but if it's the case that in certain areas like Miami and New Orleans, that there is new risks, there's a caveat emptor question of if people are adults, given that we're generally risk-averse, if we have a desire to protect our family, then it makes sense to take precautions, whether it's making your house more resilient to shocks or moving to higher ground, that these are forms of adaptation. If government, through well-intentioned actions, subsidizes risky living, then that's a serious moral hazard effect. Uh, we've seen this in the banking sector, and this could play out again in our coastal areas of implicitly subsidizing people to take risks, and then all taxpayers will bear the consequences. And some people may actually die if, if some of these terrible events that climate scientists claim do occur of unexpected abrupt sea level rise. A lot of people point to Katrina as an example of that. Do you agree with that view that there was uh, because uh, local people there didn't have enough skin in the game when it came to securing their own uh, safety, that that actually created another risk? I continue to puzzle over Katrina that uh, what I'd like to know, and I've been to New Orleans several times, is 
did did the Army Corps of Engineers oversell their defense? Uh, imagine a libertarian view where New Orleans had no government investment in seawalls. Where would people have lived? Would they have moved to higher ground? In economics, there's something called the lulling hypothesis. If you have faith in government's ability to protect you, do you let your guard down? by living in risky areas. It's almost believing that sort of Santa Claus can protect you. And I want to be careful there and not overly please our Cato listeners, but but we can one trust government too much? Do we have a proper skepticism of government, of how much government protects us when the Army Corps of Engineers makes an investment? And that's a risk we run in the private market as well. People oversell things all, but, but all the time. But there we have competition. Uh, so Moody's competes against Standard & Poor's for, for rating. We, we have competition. Bad example. We uh, McDonald's <laughs> competes against Burger King. <laughs> Starbucks against Dunkin' Donuts. Do we have enough competition? One of the themes in my Climatopolis work has been if we anticipate that we face the challenge of sea level rise and extreme heat, then, then the next Tesla, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, these entrepreneurs will focus their effort in coming up with more resilient technologies, and they'll have an incentive to prove that they work. The government, with its monopoly, doesn't have strong enough incentives to, to demonstrate that its, its products work. And so an interesting question is, as if we continue to choose to live along the coast, we're going to need new methods to protect ourselves. Are cell phones alerting us of new challenges? Will the private sector step up or will the public sector continue to have a monopoly in supplying these protective technologies? What are the other dimensions of adaptation that people ought to be thinking about? And again, I think it's important to, to point out you're talking about dealing with the climate change that is expected to occur based upon emissions that have already been put out there. So I've done, I've lived for short periods in Singapore. Singapore is an urban nation state very close to the equator where it's routinely over 90 degrees. And yet this is a very rich people. And, and so uh, what goes on in Singapore is it's extremely hot each day. This is an air-conditioned city where people really come out at night to do their shopping when it's much cooler. And so it, there's two levels of adaptation there. People are working and living and in enjoying themselves in air-conditioned malls, and then their nightlife. The city comes to life. It's a safe city. The city comes to life at night of when it's 20 degrees cooler. And so that's an example with current technologies of how our, in our urban future, even if we don't move to northern latitudes, of how uh, uh, cities such as Dallas and Las Vegas right now continue to be hot places, hot in terms of fun and productivity despite the heat. And so... In the, what I would say is this, on extremely hot days, sociologists have documented that in the inner city, that people who live in old housing who don't have air conditioning have potentially suffered greatly, the heat waves in Chicago in the 1990s. I think in richer cities, we need to figure out ways to get people who don't have cars and who, some who don't have air conditioning, even in the year 2016, how we get these individuals to cooling centers on the hottest days. And this is in a fair society. Uh, what we do to protect the vulnerable against the risks we face. The way this kind of debate seems to have unfolded, when some people talk about climate change, they describe it as, well, we're going to have to give some things up. And they're almost exclusively talking about 
mitigation, that is reducing the uh, total output of uh, chemicals that uh, contribute to climate change. And when they say we, that's when I get a little suspicious because they're act- they seem to be referring to uh, specific industries, um, specific creature comforts that humans have uh, come to enjoy that many billions of people on Earth would love to be able to enjoy. And uh, from that perspective, uh, what you're saying is probably very unsatisfactory to those folks because when they talk about giving something up, they don't mean themselves. So I've run into the challenge that in my work on the microeconomics of adapting to climate change, people have said any optimism about adaptation lulls the middle-class moderates into thinking we don't need to mitigate. I do believe that if we could reduce our greenhouse gas emissions through more nuclear power, through investment in basic research in improving solar and and wind technology, it'll be easier to adapt to climate change if we could reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But I'm on record that that the politics is obvious to me that Hillary, even Hillary Clinton is not speaking in her 2016 platform about a carbon tax. She knows that's a non-starter. And so in a world where India and Indonesia and Vietnam are cranking their air conditioning, as greenhouse gas emissions rise, the real question is, how do we continue to have a vibrant U.S. economy in the face of climate change? And in my work, what I've argued is we've got three things going for us, migration, competition, and innovation. So migration, uh, if a city like Houston becomes unlivable, There is plenty of land in more northern latitudes to rebuild our cities. Uh, And and so just because we've built our cities in the past in certain locations, why will our cities, cities like Cleveland and Buffalo used to have hundreds of thousands of more people. Uh, We we have urban dynamics. Uh, Why won't that happen again? Matthew Kahn is a professor of economics at the University of Southern California. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.